Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Marina Appleman, professor of industrial and operations engineering at the University of Michigan. How's it going, Marina? It's going great, Brett. It's really great to be here with you. So uh, we'll, we'll start by acknowledging that you and I have known each other for a long time. Um, yeah. I yeah. first there's a photo of me the first time I met Merlin Mann and looking at it years <laughs> later I realized you're in the background of it walking past yes and think, looking like I'm lost in the conference hall which was probably true <laughs> and we met briefly at that Macworld um, yeah mm -hmm. you you were the reason I realized I'd been pronouncing LaTeX wrong for years <laughs> yep all right well, because you were you were talking about it, you were talking, mm -hmm. you were excited about something, and I couldn't figure out what you were. LaTeX, like I, <laughs> it <laughs> yes. went right over my head. Um, but anyway, yeah, and and we've uh, we've met up probably almost yearly since then at various conferences and whatnot. Uh, at least, yeah. Mm -hmm. So and and MacStock as of late. Uh, yep. <laughs> so you live in the city that I spent my formative years in, Ann Arbor, Michigan. That's right. We even met up in Ann Arbor once. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With dogs and everything. Um, yep. it, so I guess uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to go and start reminiscing about a city I haven't lived in for 20 years, but 30 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've been here 18 years. Yeah. Uh huh. Do you love Ann Arbor? I really, really do. Uh, it's funny. Uh, so I g came to the States uh, from Russia as a relative grown up. I was 19 years old. And um, at first I lived in Ithaca, New York, uh, where I went to college. And then I moved to Boston for grad school. And then I came here. And it's it's funny. I think it's like a perfect combination of both like a tiny little college town uh, and a big, exciting city with a lot of stuff going on and a big airport, which makes it easy to travel. Uh, and so that also means that there are a lot of, you know, bands and concerts and artists who will come in and uh, perform here at the music school and at a bunch of mu music venues around town. And it's a great place. And I have to say, you know, since you left and even since I came here, it's actually becoming more and more sort of exciting and cosmopolitan there's a lot of you know interesting food and a lot of a lot more interesting stuff going on so yeah. i really love it here it has grown rapidly in the last even even 10 years but probably yeah. consistently since i left uh, yeah <laughs> it was um, pretty cool even back then though true yeah so i wasn't uh, around there in those times although so interesting thing is um the uh, Russian and Slavic languages department here, uh, the chair of the department in the, I guess, 70s and early 80s, uh, he started a Russian language publishing house called Ardis. And uh, in those days, they were publishing a lot of uh, Russian poets and writers who weren't allowed to publish in the Soviet Union. And sometimes people who managed to travel abroad would kind of sneak some a few copies back into the country and lend them out to their friends. So I, even before I came to Ann Arbor, I remember seeing this, you know, imprint artist Ann Arbor, <laughs> Michigan, from my childhood. Wow. Wow. So it's like a mythical city for you. Uh, it was. Yes. <laughs> it turned out it's actually real. Very cool. All right, so let's jump real quick all the way back to uh, your when you're 19 and younger, living in what I assume was USSR at that point. Uh, no, so um, it, it's actually funny. So uh, a couple of months ago, it was exactly 25 years since the day my family moved from Moscow to the States. And in a fit of nostalgia, I dug up the passport I had at the time and I looked at the you know, the passport and the stamps and all that. And so the passport was actually issued in 91 in December, a week before Soviet Union officially fell apart. And then we <laughs> came over, we came over uh, about half a year later, but my passport still says USSR, but it was actually Russia at the time, technically okay. speaking. Yeah. Wow. 
Um, yeah, so I spend all my Russian life except for the last half a year in the Soviet Union. So in brief, like rough overview, mm-hmm. I've, uh, I've come to realize, actually a lot through talking to you, but in high school I had assumed that most of what I had heard as a kid about the Soviet Union was probably like Cold War propaganda trying to make me you know, think less of the country. And it was scary and there were, you know, bread lines and all of this. <laughs> right back at you. I heard a lot of things in high school about you too. I know, I believe that. Um, <laughs> yeah. What was it really like? Uh, so first of all, I was a kid and I was a kid growing up in Moscow where I think uh, however tough they were, things were actually a lot better than almost anywhere else in the country. And, uh, you know, my family was by no means wealthy, but, you know, they were well educated. They were, you know, uh, very determined to uh, provide the best life to their kid they could possibly could. And so... To, to be honest, as I was growing up and going through school and starting, col- starting college, I was as shielded from difficulties of real life in the Soviet Union as I could possibly be. But, um, yeah, it, it was certainly, you know, looking back at it, it was, it was certainly weird. Uh, there were... There were, there were bread lines. People weren't literally starving in Moscow, but obviously there wasn't variety and choice and quality of food there was sure. no fruit there's no fruit in the winter what, what not really so is that the result uh it, as far as you know is that the result of communism or is that specific to something that was going on with the soviet union um that's a good question i think i think it it can be in many ways traced back to communism because it was a very um you know, unequal system. Uh, and so all the distribution channels of anything, let's let's go with food, were centrally controlled. Uh, and so there was a certain hierarchy in terms of sort of who got first access to any kind of resources. So it always started at the top with the, you know, party leadership, and then it sort of came down to, not even to the stores, but who could get access to what, uh, sometimes in ways that involved involved bribes and uh, stuff like that, uh, and then you know it came down to the stores in big cities, and then whatever was left maybe got back to the rest of the country. And so it had to, a lot to do with communism. It had uh, a lot to do with uh, well, if you want to go all the way back to the twenties and thirties, there was definitely. Um, a lot of decisions Stalin has made to uh, impose certain behaviors on p- people who were, in particular, growing the crops that uh, really uh, produced a lot of deficiencies in the system. So, yeah, it was it it was bad and unfortunate from all directions. <laughs> okay, would you would you say it was uh, compared to what you know life is like here for? four kids would you say it was Mm -hmm. tough i'm sure there were some populations for whom it was in some ways comparable as i again as i said my family that was reasonably well situated in the in the capital city it wasn't but um yeah I'm, i'm i'm sure there were um some families who were in similar situations it's probably not for the same, well, definitely not for the same reasons, but yeah. Yeah, okay. So at what point then did your interest in mathematics, which is clearly a big part of your whole life, when did that yeah. begin? Absolutely. Well, um, so my parents are both engineers, uh, and my, both of my grandfathers were engineers, and my one of my grandmothers is an economist, etc. So it definitely runs in the family. Um, it's um, something that uh, my parents really encouraged me to do, both because they hoped to stimulate interest in me in the same things that they were um, professionally interested in, 
Uh, and so they certainly encouraged me in every way. Uh, there was another sort of slightly less sunny uh, undercurrent. And that is um, when I was a little kid, I actually wanted to, I wasn't entirely clear on what I actually wanted to do professionally, but I wanted to do something that involved writing and language. And um, actually, when uh, I started out uh, my schooling in the elementary and middle school, I actually went, went to a magnet school that, in addition to the regular curriculum, emphasized uh, really almost professional level study of English language. And so uh, a lot of students who were there, they were really uh, good at you know writing and verbal skills, et cetera. And, um, I really wanted to be a journalist or a lawyer or something like that. And uh, my parents, being infinitely wise, realized that an obviously Jewish kid in Soviet Union in the 80s <laughs> is likely, to, it wasn't impossible, but it was likely that the kid would have a really hard time getting into colleges and getting professional, adva professional advancement in uh, in the humanities and related fields and had a much better chance in technical subjects. So they, I think, encouraged me not just because they thought that it would be exciting, but also they really thought I would have an easier um, college admissions and easier professional life. And so they, um, as I was finishing middle school and about to start high school, they kind of suggested that I try out for uh, another magnet school, uh, magnet high school that was emphasizing uh, mathematics in addition to the regular curriculum. And I was reluctant at first, but um, I got in and I had a wonderful experience there and had a wonderful experience in college, both in Russia and in the States, uh, where I uh, finished up my undergraduate degree. And uh, funnily enough, at the end of the day, I am a professor now, so I do a lot of teaching and I do a lot of research. And most of what I do day to day is actually writing and editing. And so <laughs> it all worked out in the end. That actually, that's kind of amazing that uh, you, were, you were dissuaded from what you thought your kind of dream job would be, but you, you embraced the alternative to the extent that you got to where you are now in advanced mathematics and doing the writing. Well, I, I, I like to think that this is the plan my parents had all along, that I'll be <laughs> you know, a professor in an American university, so I would need both English and math. So they were right. Nice. Mom, dad, you were right. I can, I can admit it now. Are your parents still living? Yes, they um, actually they live. Uh, they just retired uh, half a year ago from jobs in uh, Silicon Valley. So they live out in uh, they live out in Northern California. Wow! So your whole family is like a Russian immigrant uh, success story. I'd like to think we are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, so let's let's switch to mathematics in general now. Uh, what exactly mm -hmm. is your uh, well, let's talk about the field. You're in engineering. Uh, uh, yes, uh, I'm in engineering now, although I have to admit I don't have any engineering degrees. Uh, so my bachelor's degree was in mathematics. I started out in the math department of Moscow State University back in the Soviet Union. And after I finished my sophomore year, that's about the time my family moved uh, to the States. And I got into math department at Cornell University, and so I finished my degree there. And while I was um, a math student, a math undergrad, you know, I was reasonably good at it, but I didn't really want to do pure mathematics for a living, and I wasn't, I wasn't sure that that was my thing, but through a variety of ways, I discovered this field of operations research um, and that is what I went to grad school for, and this is, uh, it's a field sort of within industrial engineering, although a lot of mathematicians and a lot of people in uh, business schools, uh, they also um, do work in this area, and this is what I do now. 
So, um, uh, so uh, more narrowly within operations research, what I do is mathematical optimization. So that's my uh, field. Could you define that for me? All right. So um, it has sort of two sides to it that uh, come and meet in the middle. So it's, a, it's an area of applied mathematics. So on the methodological side, it involves the study of uh, certain types of mathematical problems and methods for solving these mathematical problems, usually involving some sort of algorithms and uh, computational solution methods. Now, what type of mathematical problems and where they come from? Well, uh, so these, these mathematical problems are usually mathematical representations of some sort of actual real-world decision-making problems. So if you're facing a decision-making problem, for example, how to use a limited amount of resources to produce the best possible um, product in a manufacturing setting, for example, if you can uh, sort of restate this real-life question in terms of uh, mathematical expressions, so uh, quantitative variables uh, whose values you need to figure out how much of a certain product to produce out of how, how much of what types of resources um, and uh, express any sort of restrictions or conditions on uh, what kind of uh, combinations of values are available if you can express it again in terms of mathematical expressions and if you can pose uh, the sort of metric, the measure that you're trying to improve, let's say if you're trying to maximize profit or if you're trying to minimize the cost or minimize the waste in your operations, you got to, by the time you're done uh, sort of translating from a word problem into a math problem, you got yourself a mathematical optimization problem. Now, uh, this is a field that's um, so depending on wh on whom you ask, if you ask Westerners, they'll say it started in the 40s in the United States. If you ask a Soviet person, and I am a Soviet person, we'll, we'll tell you it started in the 30s in the Soviet Union. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, it started out in um, 30s, uh, 40s, applied to... Um, sort of decision-making problems in manufacturing. Uh, the reason it, it really got to prominence in the 40s is because um, these kinds of models and, uh, and decisions informed by solutions to these models were used quite extensively in the war effort to you know, improve operations, improve military logistics. So um, it, it definitely was a big contribution in that field at the time. And now there are, you know, there's uh, so many industries that um, you, and not, not just industries, but other sort of in areas of endeavor that use mathematical optimization in their decision making. So uh, I hope we get, we get to talk about uh, a little specifics of what I do a in, in a little bit, but let me just start by listing some things that my colleagues and my um, and other people in my field uh, do. So there are mathematical optimization models involved in power system operations, transportation operations, uh, risk analysis, logistics, manufacturing, service systems, public work systems, healthcare systems, both on the sort of operational side, how do we run the hospital efficiently, and on the clinical side, uh, there are applications in health policy and on and on and on and on. So we're everywhere, and I really wish more people realized uh, <laughs> how just how exciting and prevalent this field is. And I, you know, I really want to encourage, uh, especially college-age kids and you know school-age kids who are mathematically inclined but don't want to be proving abstract theorems for a living, to check out our field because I think we are a great combination of. Uh, you know, mathematics, um, you know, and all the logic and rigor that goes with that, and um, computing, 
and algorithmic thinking, and also, you know, real life impact that's not focused on a particular industry. You know, not to knock on any other departments. <laughs> I can see out of my window as we record this, but you know, if you're studying, if you if you're studying chemical engineering, for example, there is a pretty specific scope of what kind of things you'll be doing um, after graduation and where you might be working after graduation. Whereas with the tools and way of thinking that uh, we've created as a discipline, you can find uh, useful, interesting things to do in pretty much any area of uh, industry, service, uh, public service, medicine. Yeah. The list goes on and on. That does sound like a, a very practical set of skills. Um, I, I can see as a as a kid, if I were given the choice between what you're describing and like theoretical physics, I would have wanted to choose theoretical physics. I never it, it sounds mundane as I grew up, though, mm. uh, and began kind of looking at what would actually be interesting to do for a job. I could see exactly uh, operational operations engineering. Being, mm -hmm. I got super into efficiency. Oh yes, and I really yeah. well, and obviously that that sprouted into automation for me, uh, right? Because I I just I can do like calculus, but mm -hmm. I don't love it, and I didn't stick with math in school for as long as I needed to to actually like be an engineer of any kind. Yeah, yeah you, you know, it's, it's interesting that you bring up calculus specifically as an example, because um, I was sort of in the same position. You know, I was in the math department because my parents told me it would be a good idea to go to a math department, right? Uh, and I was doing fine and getting through all these, you know, basic background classes you need to get started on something more specific. But none of it really made intuitive sense to me until I got to uh, one of my uh, sort of narrow fields of expertise, and that is nonlinear programming or nonlinear optimization, where all of a sudden you reach back into your calculus bag of tricks and you use it to actually explain why a certain... Uh, vector, a certain numerical assignment of values to your decision variables is or isn't an actual optimal solution. So it is the best possible solution to your mathematical problem as it's measured by your um, objective metric or performance metric. So it uh, starts with you know, concepts in calculus, and then all of a sudden it translates into uh, geometry, and you can have all sorts of intuition about uh, why something is um, is provably a solution to the problem. And then once you figure that out, you can start building algorithms, uh, you know, numerical algorithms who are trying to uh, search for the solution to the problem uh, based on that idea, I know what an optimal solution looks like. So now I can sort of organize my search around looking for a, a solution like that. So I, I got through my calculus in my freshman and sophomore year and I put it on the back shelf and I didn't think about it for about two more years until it finally made sense to me both what it is and why it's useful and interesting. <laughs> so the turning point for me, though, was... Uh, programming. Once I got into uh, to functional programming and mm -hmm. and started using code in ways that was far less procedural uh, and actually making reusable like modular functions. Yeah. Then I began to look back and think, oh, that's that's what calculus was supposed to be for me, but that part didn't ever click for me in like Calc one. And then I, you know, dropped out of Calc 2 and dropped out of computer science at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't teach these uh, introductory math courses uh, for our students. They're handled by the uh, math department. Uh, 
And it is a very interesting question whether, you know, we can uh, make this curriculum, so we as an education community make, can make this uh, curriculum more exciting and intuitive so that, you know, when grumpy students say, why do I have to learn this? I'll never going to use, it's never going to be useful to me. We can say something other than just wait in three to five years. You'll really thank me. Yeah, that that doesn't work for me. Yeah, (laughs) I'm too I'm too into um, instant gratification. Yeah. And, you know, I think there are things that can be added to this introductory math and sciences curriculum that if not explains everything this stuff is useful for in, you know, a lot of detail, at least can draw some paths that students can see and sort of chart their way through to where they might be uh, going and taking this knowledge. And uh, I think a lot of people in mathematical education are thinking about it and trying. So uh, it's a real shame to lose people because they were bored in Calc 1 or Calc 2 to have them drop out of the uh, pipeline of professions that um, rely on this background knowledge, but are really about a lot, uh, many, many other things, and a lot of them very interesting and exciting things. I think a lot of uh, more creative people probably drop out before they get to the part where they realize there's a lot of creativity in solving the problems. Or it takes creativity to find that optimal solution. Yeah. You can't you can't broach you can't broach mm-hmm. the problem without creative thought. So it seems like once uh, people like me, for example, like I'm I'm good at solving problems, but if you give me enough homework that feels um, like Rote. dying <laughs> while you're doing it, <laughs> you're not going to stick mm. with it. I had an algebra teacher in high school, not algebra, a geometry teacher in high school who spent uh-huh. the entire first day of class um, trying to explain what the practical applications would be because she didn't think or she thought that once we knew how this this had real world applications, uh, we would be into it and that what was missing was the understanding of real world applications. But all of the examples she gave were too in my opinion, rudimentary. There were all things I could figure out other ways to do without geometry. Like they were, mm-hmm. you know, things I was dealing with every day as a, you know, 16-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can make do without geometry. I needed to hear the more theoretical, like, these are problems you'd eventually be able to solve if you stick with it. That would have piqued my interest more. Yeah. I applaud her for trying, though. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And I th- I think there is a lot of uh, sort of groundswell in understanding that, you know, we, we definitely need more people who are able to work in technical fields. And uh, we need to do something to have more people get access to this and stick with it and be excited about it. Not just those who sur- who sort of survive in the end, but throughout the process. And can't say I really have all the answers because I am a product of Russian educational <laughs> system where you did your homework because you were told to and weren't allowed to choose your curriculum in uh, right. school or in college. You showed up on the first day of classes, they handed you your schedule. Yeah, You had no say in that. So, you know, the question of, how do you motivate people? How do you entice them to choose, you know, a second calculus course in their uh, freshman year of college versus doing something else? That was never a question. So as a professor with that specific background uh, mm-hmm. from your childhood, how, what, how does that affect the way that you teach? I certainly feel there are some deficiencies. So there are certain things uh, I'm not on the same page with my students uh, because I do I do come from a different back uh, different uh, educational background and different sort of attitude towards uh, education uh, but 
you know, I am, as you can probably hopefully say, hopefully see, I am truly excited about the stuff that my uh, specialty can lead to. And hopefully that comes through in the, uh, in my teaching. And, you know, the courses I have been teaching for the last few years uh, have been uh, fairly technical uh, graduate courses, so they are very mathematical in nature, but, you know, there is, um, th there's a lot to be said about where this math can be used in real life, and so hopefully that's exciting in and of itself, but also I think the math that's involved is really beautiful, and it has a lot of really beautiful geometry, there is a lot of interesting interplay between various uh, concepts that are involved. And I hope I'm, you know, conveying how excited I am about this to my students. I, I feel like your excitement comes through every time I talk to you. So I'm, <laughs> I'm certain that's the oh. case. Oh, thank you. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk shortly, briefly about uh, some of the software that you use as a, mm. uh, as an engineering mathematics professor. Okay. Well, uh, so unfortunately, I am not really a programmer, and I'm not really a expert in computational side of my field. Uh, there's a there's an old joke, an old academic joke, when one professor asks another, "So, what kind of um, software, what what kind of programming language do you use?" And the the guy says, "Well, I use a very high level." Uh, programming language is called graduate students. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I I I myself come come from a more sort of abstract uh, background, uh, and on the other hand, a lot of the projects that I do they do involve a lot of um, computation, and so what I try to do is uh, find graduate students whose background is sort of complementary. To mine, and I can teach them certain things about mathematics and about modeling, and they can uh, teach me certain things and pick up the slack when it comes to programming and implementation and computational testing. And also, um, in addition to graduate students, also uh, pairing up with uh, people who have domain expertise in the application field where we are trying to work, uh, which is um, also, by the way, another very rewarding thing about my field. There's a lot of interdisciplinary collaborations, right? What we're trying to do is use uh, tools of mathematics and computation to tr solve real problems that other people have. And so uh, most of uh, sort of applied work that I'm proud of, it comes from collaborations with uh, people who work in other field. Uh, one thing that I, one uh, sort of family of projects, for example, I have been working for many years now is um, actually I have an ongoing collaboration with the people in the radiation oncology department at the University of Michigan Hospital, where we are developing new models and new solution algorithms to design better treatment planning uh, software for um, radiation uh, for, for radiation therapy for cancer patients. So just briefly, the uh, way that most radiation treatments is delivered to cancer patients is through these incredibly complicated uh, machines that are computer controlled and have a, tons of, a ton of degrees of freedom. And so what you need to find out is for every patient, you need to figure out exactly how to configure and use this machine to produce the dose of radiation inside the patient's body that's um, most beneficial to treat uh, this patient's particular uh, cancer. So this depends on, you know, where the tumor is, what size it is, what shape it is, what type of tumor it is, what organs are nearby and therefore need to be uh, spared as we're designing this um, treatment plan uh, and stuff like that. And so as you can imagine, this kind of work in involves all sorts of collaborations across the board. So I interact with, you know, doctors. I interact with nuclear physicists uh, who provide 
their expertise within the hospital. We also have um, software engineers uh, who uh, help us all to sort of put our ideas together into something that uh, can work within the hospital system, both co collecting patient data and then uh, designing these uh, treatment plans and uh, dispensing them in the clinic. So uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting collaborations um, on that end. That sounds amazing. Now, it, it, it is amazing. Uh, yeah, it, it's this, you know, it's it's one of the things I work on. Uh, it's probably the longest thing I worked on. And there are, you know, there are always sort of interesting math problems uh, that come up based on, you know, new types of uh, treatment machines that uh, manufacturers develop and new ideas in um, exactly how uh, we want to treat the patients. Uh, there is new understanding of biology of both um, tumors and healthy cells and understanding how they would uh, respond to radiation. And so we get to incorporate all of this new findings into our tweaked models and uh, come up with new approaches for designing treatment plans. And even if the models stay the same, if I can come up with a new faster algorithm to solve them, that means that a physician who is trying to decide how to treat the patient gets an opportunity to you know, look at more options and consider more opportunities and maybe come up with something that's better suited for a particular patient than if uh, they only had time to look at a couple of uh, alternative plans. So yeah, that's, that's what I mean when I say that you know, there's a lot of math involved, but there's also an opportunity to see a real contribution that's being made uh, in a very important field. So I have to, I have to, this project sounds like massive as far as interdisciplinary collaboration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How does it, how does that function? Like how, do, how are you given like a project, like a problem and you return with a solution or do you guys all work in groups? Uh, uh, like how does it get divvied up like that? So, it, so in, some, in some sense, it is a massive project, right? So we're a research, uh, we're a research hospital here. So uh, everybody, well, most of the people who work in the hospital, they have sort of a clinical part of their work when where they uh, treat patients, evaluate uh, treatment plans and equipment and stuff like that. But they also do research, and so there is. Uh, a lot of activity going on. There are all sorts of people involved working on sort of particular pieces on the project. So I got to meet these people sort of by serendipity. Uh, there, are, there are a few people in my area in operations research who work on related problems. And 15 years ago, one of them came to give a talk at the University of Michigan and both people from my department came and people from radiation oncology came and we sort of started chatting there and we got to know each other. And, you know, it, it didn't get off the ground right away. It took us a while to sort of feel each other out and under, for me to understand what their problems were and for them to understand what sort of skills I had and how I could be useful to them. But uh, eventually it sort of grew over time and uh, it's sort of, it's an ongoing collaboration. I spend uh, most of my time um, I spend and my students spend interacting with the uh, physicists in the group. So there are a couple of people who have um, background in nuclear engineering. So they actually understand how these machines work. Um, and they uh, and they sort of, uh, at least in terms of our communications, they sort of for me sit between me and my students and physicians and dosimetrists and um, other clinicians who uh, actually decide on um, the treatment goals for every patient. And I can, I'm actually very lucky because uh, I have uh, people who uh, are actually very good at uh, being interpreters because they have an engineering ba uh, engineering background and many of them actually have medical degrees or uh, some level of medical training. So they're actually very good at um, both uh, 
sort of elucidating from the physician's side what they're struggling with, what they would like to be improved, uh, what they would like help with on the method, uh, sort of software side or um, modeling side, and then I can talk to them and we can figure out together whether um, my expertise in mathematical modeling and algorithms can um, address some of these problems and to what extent it can address those problems. Wow. All right. Well, clearly we have just barely scratched the surface of all of this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I hope you won't be offended if it's time for the top three picks. Oh, no, that's great. All right. So you, you've heard the show before. You know, you know what's yeah. happening. Uh, mm -hmm. Three picks, one each. You get to start. All right. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> three picks, one at a time. You get to start. I said one each, that it was a complete contradiction within one sentence. My apologies. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so for my first pick, I'd like to go back to the beginning of our conversation and our discussion of the Soviet Union and life in the Soviet Union and um, all that stuff. So my first pick is actually a journalist, a Russian-American journalist. Her name is Masha Gessen. Um, she is, she has an interesting background. So she was, uh, born in Moscow a few years. She's a few years older than I am. And she moved to the States when she was a teenager. And then in the early nineties, went back to the, to Russia to work as a, as a journalist, spent about 20 years, uh, working there, but also writing for American publications as well. And she moved back to the, uh, States a few years ago and she's, incredibly prolific and uh, she writes a lot uh, she writes a lot of uh, books about uh, various aspects of Soviet uh, political history Soviet history she wrote a very well uh, received biography of Putin a while back uh, she just won I think the National Book Award uh, th this year so it was just a few weeks ago uh, for her book Futurist History about the sort of history of Soviet Union from the late 80s until now. Uh, she's also been writing a lot about, um, well, how should I say it? Some of the reasons that Russia has been in the American news a lot lately. Okay. Uh, so she's a columnist for The New Yorker. She contributes to The New York Times and New York uh, Review of Books. I have links um, to all of that for you uh, to include in the show notes if you'd like. I also have links to, um, so she has had a book out this year, so she was on the book tour and gave quite a lot of interviews on uh, radio shows and podcasts, and I picked a few of them that I think are uh, very interesting. Excellent. Uh, so I wholeheartedly endorse her. Now, aside from all of this political stuff, I also want to give a particular book recommendation of hers. And that has nothing to do with the current political happenings. Uh, it's the book called Esther and Ruza, How My Grandmother Survived Hitler's War and Stalin's Peace. And it's an incredibly touching story. It's, it's really just a biography of her two grandmothers who uh, were teenagers in the 30s. Um, one in Poland, one in the Soviet Union, and the story of their lives from that point on. And if you want to find out more about the history of the Second World War and how it affected Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union and what life was like in the Soviet Union from the late 30s into about late 80s, it's very good for that. And it's also very well written and very touching. So that's my first book. That, Masha that, Gessen. That was like a serious, a serious pick. Everything I do after that, like none of my three picks can follow that with any kind of gravity. <laughs> um, but the closest I can get is I just got the uh, the new Kindle Oasis. Yes, it is available on Kindle. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah. So the how do you like it? I've been thinking about it. I, I kind of bought it. It was like a Cyber Monday deal, um, just uh, on a whim. But mm -hmm. 
it is significantly lighter even than my the small paper white that I had before. Mm-hmm. Um, it has uh, full audible uh, capabilities, like yeah. as in you can listen to uh-huh, audio books. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, that's what made me think about it. It has a bigger screen too, right? Yeah, it is bigger and somehow still lighter. It's super thin, except for there's like a side bar where mm-hmm. you would like hold it. But uh, the main par- portion of it is extremely thin. Even if you were to fall asleep reading with it overhead and you drop it on your face, uh, not that I do that more than once a night, but... <laughs> Um, it doesn't, it, it just, it, it's like a piece of paper falling on your face. It's fine. Um, also it's waterproof. So I, I have no particular need for that right now, but I imagine if I started taking baths, that would be handy. Or, you know, sipping tea while you read it and <laughs> accidentally <laughs> fall asleep with a tea, tea mug in your hand and the Kindle in the other. <laughs> the, yeah. I, I would be thankful at that point that at least one thing didn't break. That's great. Yeah, I've been contemplating it, and I'm cl- glad to hear it gets your endorsement. I'll look at it more closely. I didn't even realize they're $250 new. I definitely didn't pay that much. I think I paid 200 for it. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Oh, and the it's... Like the paper white that I had, like I found that screen readable anywhere, but this mm-hmm. one has it's a the mat of the screen is different and it's it automatically adjusts uh backlighting. Ooh. Ooh, wow, yeah, that's that, exciting. And and I, like I said, I didn't have a particular complaint about that before, but it does mm-hmm. make a difference once you once you see it. Yeah, so the paperweight is what I have now, and it's fine. The thing that does bug me is that you, you can only turn pages with a touchscreen, and it doesn't always work as oh, intended. Man. That touchscreen is so unresponsive. I, mm-hmm. It does it drives me nuts, and I cannot say that the uh, the Oasis is this like a great improvement it's a little bit better but the screen is still less responsive than i want it to be yeah but if it has page turn buttons though right so you don't need the touch screen for as many things as you do on the paper white i, I i'm so used to turning the page <laughs> with, i actually haven't it does have buttons i have not used them i, I should probably try that if I'm really going to get this irate about an unresponsive touchscreen, maybe I should try the <laughs> buttons. Yeah. There you go. Okay. All right. Well, since we're talking about gadgets, my next pick is, and we sort of chatted about this in either in Slack or on Twitter time a little while ago. My next pick is singing in the shower. Now, let me backtrack. So I I have been since college an NPR junkie and I have radios all over my house, including a shower radio. Uh, and so I would wake up and just turn all those radios on as I get ready for my day, including the shower radio. Uh, and I would listen to the news on NPR. But lately, the news hasn't been <laughs> of the type that gets you pumped up and exciting to, you know, leave the house yeah, and exactly. conquer the world. <laughs> So a few months ago, I decided that um, I need something else uh, in the shower. And so I got a waterproof or at least splash-proof Bluetooth speaker, which I now use to either listen to podcasts or put on some music and sing along in the shower. And the particular one I use, uh, which I really like, is Bose SoundLink Revolve Plus. Uh, it costs about 300 bucks. It's, you know, it's very solid. It uh, sounds great, as pretty much everything Bose uh, makes. It has a nice little handle on top, so after I'm done with the shower, I usually kind of just carry it out like a lantern and carry it around with me through the rest of the morning around the house. <laughs> um, I it's a, yeah, it's a little on the pricey side. They also make a 
smaller $200 version, but I went with this one and I really like it. It has uh, it has a speaker in it, it has a Siri button, so uh, you can call up things remotely from it. And if you're looking for a shower speaker, I highly recommend it. That I actually am. I 100% I'm looking and I've always bought those little like $20 suction cup ones. Um, mm. Never, never had one last very long. This, yeah. this seems smart. Yeah. I, I don't know how long it's going to last. I've only had it a few months. Uh, so the battery runs lasts me at least a week uh, of daily use of about an hour uh sometimes longer and also you know they're good outdoor speakers i think you can also if you have two of them you can pair them and make a stereo pair out of them so wow it's it's a lot of good things um there are there are a few other companies that make similar things in the same price range uh i have a lot of both things so yeah. I, I like them and you know it looks nice has a nice handle I, I like to sort of pretend i'm walking around the house carrying a lantern with this thing <laughs> it does look like a lantern i just found a picture of it yeah um have the uh sonos play one uh which i just mentioned in a recording i did two days ago that mm -hmm. hasn't gone out yet but um yeah that one looks like uh, that's the one that until you mentioned this mm. i've been really curious about it's 150 dollars and yeah. it does like it automatically sets its sound up for the room it's in and it is water or like uh shower proof like not for in the shower but yeah. humidity and stuff in the bathroom right right uh so i have a a, a few uh, uh sonos things uh i've had them a while so they don't have this uh you know they're not smart speakers like the new one is yeah. now i don't actually use uh alexa so i wasn't really crazy about it and also you, ne you need to plug it in and yeah. there isn't really a good outlet in my uh master bathroom to put it so that that i i thought about this but i i ended up going with this uh bluetooth one because it's battery operated that makes sense. So yeah, it, it depends on what makes sense to you, uh, in depending on sort of your setup and how the room is configured. Uh, yeah, but Sonos Sonos things are great too. Oh, except the Bose SoundLink also has Alexa. Does it? Wait, well, okay. So for uh, li for a limited time, we're offering a bundle of our SoundLink Revolve Plus speaker with the Amazon Echo Dot with Alexa. Playing oh, so you can hook the speaker oh, up to Alexa. Yeah, 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 you can. But I don't think you're, if you're really looking for something to put in the bathroom, I, yeah. I don't think you're supposed to put the echoes in Yeah, probably not. Yeah, they're not steam proof. <laughs> so if you don't, I'm, I think they're going to probably work. I don't know how many months they're going to survive. Yeah. I'm not going to find out. I'm really enjoying my little dot. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, that that's another one to go on my uh, consideration consideration list for mm -hmm. new portable speakers. Um, so my second pick, you'll be familiar with the concept of snowblowers. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> sure how wide ranging uh, my listenership experience with deep snow is, but um, I haven't had a gas powered. I haven't had a snowblower for a year now. I've been shoveling and uh, I've actually gotten good at shoveling. My back is strong enough now. I don't hurt myself. It's kind That's of enjoyable, great. but I Isn't missed. It's great cardio. It, it is. And actually, like, I love uh, figuring out uh, the, the most efficient patterns for shoveling driveways. Um, oh, Brett, you have to come work with me. The most efficient <laughs> pattern. But I, I kind of missed the like when you have to get a car out of the driveway at six in the morning uh the ease of in the a, dark right the ease of a snowblower with a headlight is great so i finally broke down and bought a new one and i got the uh snow joe electric snowblower mm -hmm. and it is i it has not i we are not we have not had significant snow since i got it i have not fully been able to test it out um, thus far, 
I am super excited for the next snow. Uh, I see. It, it came in a, a small box. I was like, oh boy, this is going to require a bunch of assembly. <laughs> it snapped together. Everything is well designed. It's it's all like composite plastic, except for the handlebars, really. Um, and I think the blade in it is metal. Um, okay. But it has no brush. It It's lightweight. You can I, I can pick the thing up with one hand. It's a, an 18-inch snowblower. I don't have a huge driveway now, so that was about all I mm-hmm. needed. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, it's it can move about 50 pounds of snow a second. Wow. Yeah, and very 50. quietly. <laughs> and the the battery wow. is a the battery is a lithium ion that doesn't have a memory, so you can literally finish your driveway and then just pop the battery back into the charger and leave it without worrying about running it down or memory or anything like that. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I would have been very excited about it, except I deliberately decided to live in a townhouse community where (laughs) for the specific reason that I don't have to shovel snow and I don't have to take care of the lawns. Yeah, I I get that. I really do. Um, Lawn mowing is is not my favorite thing and the place i'm living happens to have a neighbor who needs access to the backyard uh to get to the property he has below Mm -hmm. and so he as part of the deal for access he does the lawn so hey so you're halfway there (laughs) I, i i like if i'm gonna enjoy winter it's going to be because um of things like finding the best way to shovel snow. That's it's how I get through like solving problems <laughs> makes winter at least a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. We had a big snowstorm a couple of days ago, uh, like eight inches in an afternoon. We haven't had that yet. Yeah. Well, it's but melting now. Thankfully. I, I wonder if it, oftentimes we get Michigan weather two days after Michigan. That's kind of counterintuitive. I thought it goes from west to east. Yeah, I can't explain that. I maybe it's, right, maybe it's just the next Michigan weather. Where do nor'easters originate? Uh, on the south of east coast, and then they go up the coast. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, no, I really should look at the broader weather, weather patterns. But I know, like, my parents lived in Ann Arbor for years, and if they told me they got, you know, a foot of snow... I could be pretty sure that in the next couple of days, I was going to see some snow. I don't, I don't know how that works. Hmm. Me neither. I like weather and all, but I can't explain yeah. that one. All right. Yeah. One, we're Midwesterners, right? So we have to do it. You know that Weather Underground was started at the University of Michigan. I did know that. Yes. So the guy who, st- uh, one of the guys who started it uh, was a faculty here and he's still a faculty here. But you know that Gopher was started at the University of Minnesota, right? Even if I didn't know that, I would have guessed by the name. (laughs) Yeah. For people of a certain age, you know, your first access to distributed information. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. So uh, let's see. So my last pick is, uh, so I may sound very serious uh, when I talk about... uh, my work and my research, etc. But let's not forget how much fun it is to make fun of researchers. So I have a couple of things to recommend um, for making fun of researchers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so as I said, I have a couple of things. So first of all, of course, as a escaped math major, I have to start with the song Lobachevsky, but by Tom Lair. Um, my uh, other recommendation along this line is a TV show uh, from a few years ago called uh, Better Off Ted. Yes. You've seen it? Yes. Yeah, that first so thing you mentioned, I have no idea, but Better um, Off Ted, yes. Yeah, so um, it's there are only a couple of half seasons of it out there. Unfortunately, I don't think it's uh, available for streaming anywhere, but you can buy it on iTunes or uh, Amazon. And I'm pretty sure I streamed it. It was for a while. Oh. I, I checked right before we went on because I was going to recommend it. And unfortunately, uh, it's not on any free streaming right now. But, you know, it's only two seasons. And it's um, it's 
well worth it. Uh, it's um, about uh, R&D, uh, a gigantic corporation and their R&D department and sort of the corporate and administrative sort of tussles with the uh, researchers who are working there. Uh, one of the lead actors on it is Portia de Rossi, and she is perfect. Yes. So I highly recommend that. And I have to go back to my Russian roots, Soviet roots again to finish this off and recommend another uh, another book about making fun of researchers and their uh, struggle with administrators. And that is uh, the book called, bear with me, Понедельник начинается в субботу. Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it, it's, uh, so, so the translation is Monday starts on Saturday. And uh, it's about, uh, so, so the protagonist in it is a computer programmer in the Soviet Union in the, I think it's late 60s, uh, who gets, uh, who accidentally meets and get, gets recruited to work in this um, research, uh, sort of remotely located research lab. And when he starts working there as a programmer, he realizes that it's a research lab doing research in uh, magical powers. Um, and so things take off from there. So if you are uh, a Russian speaker, um, Actually, if you are a Russian speaker, you probably know about this book already. <laughs> um, but uh, if not, uh, there is um, a very good translation of it by Andrew Bromfield that's uh, published by a British publishing house. It is available in the Amazon UK store. So I, I think if you are, unless you're located in the UK, I'm not sure you can get the Kindle version of it, but you can, and I did. Uh, import the uh, paperback version from England. Uh, so it's a lot of, it, it's, it's an incredibly humorous book. It was my favorite sort of science, magical fiction book when I was about 12, 13 years old. I'm rereading this now and I'm realizing that I actually did want to be a professor all along <laughs> because why else would I love this book so much? Um, so. Yeah, that's my last recommendation. Make All fun right. of researchers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that you, you came prepared with uh, two or three sub picks for every pick just off the bat. I've been, you know, I've been contemplating this since <laughs> when did you start this podcast? <laughs> Years ago. There you go. It, what was it, like 20, 2012, maybe? 2011? Yeah, that's... Uh... I can figure well, that out somehow. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, all right. My my uh, last pick, I think... All right, so this is going to be a risky one. Um, my The uh, endorsement of this pick will depend on how this episode sounds. Because uh, I just got the Audio-Technica ATR2500 USB mic. And um, it seems great and my testing it was great if this episode sounds if i sound like a golden god right now um then i wholeheartedly endorse this pick if this sounds awful then i think i just told you everything you need to know well you sound good to me brett well well yeah we'll see well <laughs> i, I will we'll say then that if there are any major problems it'll be on my end with the recording but thus far for 80 bucks it is a really nice mic i i won't go into all the tech specs but it is equivalent uh to some of the 250 dollars mics that uh you can compare specs on so uh this is mm. the i i learned about this mic from a previous guest and after the after the podcast i said what mic are you using because you sound amazing and he's like oh yeah it's one that uh uh dan and marco recommended or Dan or Marco, I, I don't remember. But yeah, uh -huh. so I picked it up. I love it. Oh, so you think it sounded better than what you were using before? That is, uh, in in my testing it, with some logic tracks, yes, I like it better. Um, the 
Uh, it, it's more directional, picks up, or like it has a smaller range. So anything outside of my little sphere of me and the mic uh, does not pick up much at all. And then the, uh, the responsiveness to my vocal range has been great. Yeah, sounds good. Which for podcasting is really all you need yeah. to worry about. <laughs> That's right. All yeah. right. Um, awesome. So you can be found on Twitter uh, at Marina Appleman, all one word. That's right. Uh, yes. I did locate your uh, your page at the U of M, but it's not mm-hmm. terribly. Uh, <laughs> the one that I found basically just lists your department. So uh, I, have, I do have a personal web page, and I wanted to say it's highly Googleable, but I guess Google knows that I'm Googling myself. Uh, but I tell you what, if you go to my Twitter bio, from there you'll find a link to another Twitter account, which I use for uh, professional purposes. And in that Twitter bio, there is a link to my um, uh, professional web page. All right. Anywhere else you want to be found? Um, I think that's about it. All right. And uh, do you want to say anything to the uh, kids listening that are pl- that are looking for a college? Ooh, uh, that's a tough one. I uh, I'm better at uh, talking to undergraduate students looking for graduate school because <laughs> no, uh, that makes sense though. I mean, because people could go to college anywhere and still come uh, to the, uh, the yeah, grad. That's program, true, but right? uh, to be honest, faculty have actually very little involvement in making admissions decisions for undergrads. But uh, the faculty in each department does uh, recruiting to their graduate programs, and in fact, one of the sort of service things I do for my department is um, I chair the committee that does all of our graduate admissions. So um, I guess I should say if you're if you're studying any technical subject, uh, science or mathematics, or if you're studying any kind of engineering, really look at operations research and industrial engineering or industrial and systems engineering, as it's sometimes called. Um, it's a real opportunity to both be a nerd and make a real impact in people's lives in a variety of industries and applications. There is never a boring day. Perfect. That should definitely be on the floor. <laughs> and I am Brett Terpstra. I am at brettterpstra.com, TTSCOF, everywhere online. You can find me here at... Um, uh, systematic on ESN, but also overtired when it gets, you know, on schedule, uh, occasionally overtired, we'll say. Um, and you can also head over to signup.systemcast.net and uh, join the Slack community. And oh, yeah, you can also find Systematic on Twitter at Systemcast with no E there. I really should just write down this whole spiel. I should record it once and just tag it. Yeah. Marina, thank you for being here. Thanks for giving up an afternoon for this. Oh, thanks for having me. As I, I think I wrote one of the first reviews of this podcast way back. and <laughs> Back in the 5 by 5 Back five in the days. 5 by 5 days. And I say again what I said back then. This is fresh air for nerds. I remember that <laughs> review. Was it? I don't know if it had a recognizable username on it, but I did actually screenshot that oh, review. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you. Thank you for that. All right. Well... Thank you for being here, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you in a week. Bye.